Happy New Year. Ian here. Jason's off this week. As we prepare for the year ahead, we wanted to look back at some of our favorite conversations from 2019. We'll be back with the first new episode of 2020 with plenty to discuss on January 17th. We'll start off with episode 56 and our conversation with Mark Van Honecker, a first officer with British Airways and a recent convert from the 747 to the 787. Van Honecker is also an accomplished author, and we discuss his recent book, How to Land a Plane. We are joined by a very special guest, a pilot for British Airways and author extraordinaire, Mark Van Honecker. Welcome to AvTalk. Oh, I'm uh, very happy to be here. Thank you. Mark, welcome to the show. Happy to have you. Thank you. Thanks. So for anyone not familiar with Mark's, I'll call it a compendium at this point because you're you're in a wide variety of places. You're a first officer for British Airways, first, I guess first and foremost in the aviation world. But then I hesitate to call them side projects, but the other thing that you do is is write and rather beautifully, I, I must say, about aviation in general. Your first book, uh, Skyfaring, came out a few years ago. Your second book, which remind me the title again? It's called uh, how to land a plane. How to land a plane. So helpful information exactly. for, exactly. <laughs> for listeners to this podcast, I think. That will be out on the in the US on the 30th of April. That's right. Um, yeah. So yeah. so we're looking forward to that. And and we wanted to have you on the show to talk about your piloting career um, because you've recently made a switch in your in what you're flying, and also talk about what we can expect to see in the book out this month. So let's dive into the change in your career. You were a 747 pilot. You are now a 787 pilot. And I'd love to hear more about kind of some of the the differences between flying the aircraft, not necessarily how the aircraft handles or anything like that, but is it a different kind of flying stepping from, from the 747 to the 787? Yeah, I mean, I when I first started with uh, with British Airways, I was flying the Airbus uh, A320 series, so 319s, 20s, and then eventually 321s on short haul routes in Europe. And then I switched pretty much as soon as I could to the 747. I'd, I'd been, you know, it was the plane I dreamed about flying since I was a kid. And it's your audience uh, doesn't need any uh, it doesn't need any introduction to the glories of the 747. I'm sure, but I was just very very taken with that aircraft even as a small kid. So I flew that for 11 years and then, you know, it became time to sort of think about a change. And, uh, you know, there's, there were a few options, of course, there was the A380, the, the triple seven, seven, eight, seven, I could have gone back to short haul flying, but the seven, eight, seven was, was kind of the, the one I, I was really drawn to. It's, um, you know, it's, it has a number of really um, interesting features from a pilot's perspective, as well as from a passenger's perspective. And it's opening up a lot of sort of long, long, thin routes, I guess, just as it was designed to do. So it was a chance. It was a chance to go to some cities that I'd already known quite well, but the 747 had stopped going to, like uh, like Tokyo and Narita, as well as to go to a bunch of new cities every every month or every two months. Now I'm going to a city I've never been to before. But in, ter- in terms of flying it, it's I mean it is really a, a step change in technology. Several step changes. You know the 747-400 that I flew was I think it first flew in 1988. You guys might know that more accurately than I do. But it was it was based on a design that that first flew 50 years ago in February. In fact, the 787 was was a clean sheet design and has a number of really nice things from a pilot's perspective. It has because it's made from uh, composite materials, you can pressurize the aircraft to a more natural level of of air density, and you can also have a more humid environment. One of the reasons that humidity is controlled on aluminum airplanes is is that you 
uh, water and, and metal tend to get along that well. So, you, you know, it's in terms of corrosion, it's better to have a drier atmosphere. Uh, the 787 is not aluminum, so you can have a, a more humid atmosphere. But it's, it's got a head-up display, which I'd, I'd, I'd never used before. So it's a little transparent screen that we lower uh, between our between our eyes and, and the windscreen. And then critical data about the flight is projected onto that. So we can, you know, we can look out at the outside world and still have the most essential instruments right in front of us. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing plane to fly. The, one of the big changes, of course, um, is how much fuel it uses. The sort of figure we used on the 747 was, as a rough estimate, was 10 tons an hour. So if you were, you know, calculating your holding fuel and you had, in addition to all your reserves, you had another 10 tons, well, you knew that was about an hour that you could, that you could hold. It's exactly or almost exactly half that on a seven eight seven. Four or five tons is a, is a good is a good figure, and of course it's a smaller airplane, but it's not you know it's not half the size. <laughs> so you can see in just in those numbers the kind of efficiencies that have been built into it. So you mentioned the HUD, and I'm very interested to see or to hear about how that transition works. Is it something that is immediately much better, or is it something that it takes some getting used to, or is it just kind of one of those things where you're like, okay, this is this is how it is now? It, it does become quite natural. We don't we don't tend to use it very often during the cruise. In fact, it's used mostly on landing. It does the, the way the scale, you know, the if you compare the way the heading, your heading appears on the head-up display versus how it appears on the sort of standard primary flight display, because it's on it's on a real-world scale, it, it feels more skittish in a way, and you just have to kind of get used to the fact that you're looking at at the the heading indicators on the outside world. It's very useful on landing, uh, especially if the, if you're not flying an instrument approach. There's something called the flight uh, path vector, which is uh, you know one of the things I. I point out in in uh, how to land a plane is that a, a plane is often not moving um, in the direction that it's pointing in you know planes are often inclined slightly upwards even uh, not only in level flight but even when they're descending because of the way the the wings work and of course if the you know if you're inclined into wind that, that's also true in a lateral sense you could be pointing off to one side and, and moving sort of sideways in, in the along your flight path but the the um, the flight path vector accounts for all that. It just it sh- shows you exactly where the aircraft is moving, and that's a really useful feature on landing. So there's a lot that is great about the seven eight seven, huge leap in technology over the seven four. But what do you think you miss most about the old seven four seven after a bit of time on the seven eight? Well, the biggest thing is is pretty pedestrian actually. It's that I miss. So in, in the seven forty seven, there was our uh, our flight crew bunks, our, our rest area with it that we go into to have a sleep when there's when we're on a trip with three or four pilots that rest area was inside the flight deck and there was also a bathroom inside the flight deck so that whole the whole operation of of getting changed brushing your teeth and going to going to bed in quotes all of that was done without ever having to leave the flight deck and on the 787 there's uh, the bathroom is the the bathroom that's at the front of the passenger cabin and the the crew rest area is for the flight crew is is accessed from the forward galley. So, you know, if there's if you're um, you know, it's just it's just a less private environment. And of course, if you if you decide you uh, want to get up and have a glass of water, you have to put your uniform on, and you know, and it's a little less sort of self contained, I guess. And and that, it sounds like a small thing, <laughs> but it's but it's it's you know, it's one of those small. Things that, that that's a big part of your life of your minute to minute life. The seven eight seven flight deck is a lot quieter, which I definitely appreciate. So it's it's a much quieter environment. Leaving the flight deck to use the the bathroom or, or to go to your to your break that gives you a lot more time to talk to to the rest of the crew and to passengers as well. So in that sense, it's more social, <laughs> and that's 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 definitely an advantage. An advantage. 
it's not nothing, but it's definitely not the answer I was expecting. So that's interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, the other thing I guess is there's you do get a little when you see a 747 um, from the terminal window. I mean, it just has that look. You know, I remember my last flight on it was to Cape Town, and as I was walking into the terminal in Cape Town, I like looked back through the windows, and you see this thing, and you think. You know, even after 11 years, you think, my, you know, I can't, I just can't believe that that thing, you know, flies, let alone the, you know, that I was part of the crew that flew it. And, uh, it, it, it's just such an, uh, an iconic shape. And, um, I still feel like a big kid when I see it. And the 787 is, you know, it's, it has many advantages, but it's not, it doesn't have that iconic sort of silhouette. Uh, maybe, maybe it will in time, but I suspect the 747 was one of a kind. I don't know. What do you guys, what do you, what do you think of how the 787 looks? I definitely think you can't beat the 7.4. There, there's not, in my opinion, and there is not a better looking commercial aircraft. The 7.8, uh, I don't so much think the, the Dash 8 is really the best looker. The 9, I think proportionally looks really great. It doesn't have that that same feeling, that same, I don't know, there's definitely just a, a lot of emotion behind the 7.4 that just makes it when you see it, you have a lot more feelings towards it than the seven eight. We're just not there yet with it, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. You know what is a really um, good looking airplane? I think is actually the A three fifty. I think those winglets are just. I think they basically were designed by by some Porsche designer or something, and and they worried about the aerodynamics after or something. I mean, they just they just look they look really really cool. I just love the, so the eye shadow the, on the uh, flight deck uh, windows that they have. Yeah, I've seen some of those. Yeah, it looks pretty cool. Yeah. The transition to the, the, the 787 from the 747, in, in addition from losing the ability to not put your jacket on to go to the bathroom, which, which I, I can I can see how that would be, I mean, couple, how many, how long is the flight? How many, you know, that I could see how that would be like one of those little things where you're like, yeah, I, I do miss that. Yeah, it's a, it sounds ridiculous when you're flying, you know, 6,000 miles across the planet, but it's it's one of those things like, yeah, it comes into your, into your day-to-day life, yeah. So I have not yet had a chance to to read your your latest book, How to Land a Plane. But would I be correct in assuming that it talks about how to land a plane? <laughs> well, well, uh, yes and no. Um, so the spoiler alert is that you you cannot learn how to land a plane by reading a book. But thinking about the landing is a really good way about thinking how planes fly in the first place. And you know, I think I, I think most pilots would say that they find takeoff's more fun, but landing's more challenging. I think that's probably what a lot of my colleagues would say. Why that's true is, you know, is something worth exploring because it gets into into all the the sort of details really quickly about, about what keeps planes in the air and how pilots control them. And, you know, a lot of the basics that come into, into flying, there's a sort of standard four forces diagram, which talks about, you know, thrust and drag and lift and weight. Um, the standard three axes. So pitches, you know, pitches is how you move on a seesaw, let's say, and roll is how you move. I can't even think of an analogy um, from everyday life, but it's it's sort of that side to side rolling, rolling. I guess like if you're on a boat and it's pitching from side to side, and yaw is as if you were on a turntable. So you know, planes um, can move in all those axes and have controls that are designed to maneuver the aircraft in each of those. And so the landing is a really good way of thinking about you know about how planes fly in the first place and. I hope that the, you know, there's a kind of, you know, landings are kind of, there's like, like a, obviously an imperative quality, which makes it kind of fun for a book topic as well as, you know, for movies like Airplane. You know, I hope, I hope it's something that passengers or readers indeed will, um, will find 
shows them, you know, what, what their plane is actually doing, what their pilots are doing. And even if they don't want to become pilots themselves, maybe that will make flying a more enjoyable experience. So when, when we talk to pilots, I, I try and ask them a question about if I'm a passenger on your flight, how much are you going to tell me about what's happening on the flight deck? Because I know some pilots are like, I, I'll tell you everything. And then you get to a certain point where you're like, I, I wish he would be quiet so I could watch my movie. And then there's other times where you're like, I wonder what's happening. And there's, you, you get no information whatsoever. Where, where do you kind of come down on the, you know, making announcements to the cabin? Um, that's, that's a really good question. I mean, I, so I started I started a column recently for the Financial Times, and I, and I asked uh, readers to send send in suggestions for topics, and I got a, a bunch of letters about exactly this question. But but people were asking basically for opposite things. Some people want a lot of information, and some people don't want uh, very much at all, aside from the essentials. I mean, I guess I kind of also I guess I think you know when you're making that first announcement uh, before t- before departure, you know if you're going to New York uh, from London and you know that half the passengers are silver gold card holders and they probably do this route more than I do. You know, they're probably not too interested in where we're going to make landfall on the Canadian coast, you know, <laughs> um, they've, um, you know, that ship has sailed as, as, as it were. But of course there are some people who are probably going to New York for the first time. That must be, must be true on every flight that somebody is going to New York or London for the first time on, on a flight between them. And then if you're doing a route like, like to Cape town, for example, was, you know, most people who go there are going on a, on a holiday, probably quite a few of them are going on a honeymoon. You know, it's not the kind of place people are going to be going every month. And so for those for those flights, I would give a little bit more uh, information about the route and also just to share my own enthusiasm for the kind of scale of that journey. Yeah, there's um, definitely then, a happy medium. I've had some flights where the pilot on the PA tells you that we're taking taxiway Yankee to Yankee Alpha to runway 22 left. And that's probably a bit much for pretty much anybody, but there's definitely a happy medium where I know I want to hear about what altitude or what speed or or what countries we might fly over. So there's definitely definitely contingent out there that wants to hear where we are without being overburdened. And I, I think striking that balance is, is really important. Yeah, I mean I I did I remember a Cape Town flight a couple of years ago where we flew right over Timbuktu and I thought I thought I of course I'm gonna tell the passengers we're flying over Timbuktu. I mean it's <laughs> I mean you know how how can you how can you know how can you not? I mean I think one thing you also notice on you know if you ever look at like an aviation weather forecast, like they often don't say whether it's sunny. What they really you know what we're, what we're really concerned about is is the cloud based you know the and the visibility. And so you it, it can be hard not to introduce things into your announcements before arrival that aren't really the kind of things that most people think about when they think about. I mean when I'm going on vacation as a passenger, I basically I basically want to know the temperature and whether it's sunny or not. And I'm not too concerned about the visibility, but of course, that's such a big part of what the pilots are thinking about that it's it's natural that you know we might share that information even though it's not you know it's not the most um, you know if you're going on vacation that's probably you know it's not the kind of thing you necessarily would have checked yourself. So you said you're you're you know kind of the things you think about as a passenger. Mm-hmm. We were talking before this about you're going to have your your first trip on the A220 this week. So is that, you know, is that something that, that you do a lot or, or is this just kind of a, you happen to be in a position to, to go on a, a new aircraft? Is this something you're seeking out when you're not flying? Well, um, a little bit of both. I mean, so I, I'm super interested in, in just the business of, of aviation. Like I think before I became a pilot, I, I worked as a management consultant. And I think if I hadn't become a pilot, I would have gone into some kind of business side of, of flying. I think aside, I mean, obviously I love, 
I love flying, but I think it's just a really interesting industry. And so I, I kind of follow, you know, what's happening in it. And, you know, and to fly on a plane that I've never flown on before is pretty cool. So, you know, we're going up to Boston this weekend. And I saw that one of the flights was on an A220 and the timing worked out. But of course, I'm going to, um, I'm going to have a good look at it. And after, once we land, I'll, I'll, I'll ask if it's uh, possible to go take a, take a quick look up up front if they have time. And yeah, it's just, it is just an amazing industry. The scale of these investments and the, um, you know, to make these, these planes that, that cover the entire planet, it's pretty cool. So you mentioned that you, you want to visit the flight deck after the flight. And in your opinion, what's the best way to do that? Like I'm a passenger and I want to see the flight deck or, or something like that. What's, what's the, the best way to ask in, in, in order to get the most favorable response? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I don't, I mean, every airline has their own policy on this. I can only say for British Airways that the best way to do it is to ask uh, your cabin crew at some point uh, before takeoff, maybe once you first get to your seat and say, is there a chance to go have a look at the flight deck? Sometimes before departure, there isn't enough, there isn't time because, you know, we're busy loading on, you know, loading the computers and, and doing our checklists. Um, at the far end, usually there's time. You know, we're always happy to talk about airplanes. You won't be surprised to hear um, with people who are enthusiastic about them too. So usually there's, there's time at the end of a flight um, to t- and to take photos. People can hop in the seat and that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I guess, yeah, the best way to, to do it is to, is to ask your cabin crew. And I mean, the, 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 on, on very large planes on a, on a 747, if you're, if you're, if you're sitting um, in the rear cabin, by the time you, you've asked your cabin crew and they, they make that call to us, they have to get you from the back of the plane all the way up through that, that contra flow of passengers. And so it's not really maybe that all that convenient before departure. Best um, reason but, yet to only sit in the upper deck on the 747. <laughs> that's a great reason to sit on the upper deck. I mean, I actually, I, that's what I should have said. The best, the best way to visit the flight deck is, is to sit on the upper deck of a 747 because it's really easy if there's a few spare minutes before departure or after landing to have you come in. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people love, love seeing the flight deck and are really interested in, in flying. And um, I don't know, do you, guys, do you guys often go up to see if there's an opportunity or... I will absolutely try to. Yeah, typically I try to do it on the way out because I know before the flight they're uh, busy. Uh, just as you said, doing pre-flight checks and loading up the computer. I'll try to peek in uh, on my way off the aircraft, but sometimes, by the, if you're sitting towards the back, the pilots are off the plane before I get off the plane, so there's no one to ask. And then right, Jason right, just yeah, goes in yeah. and you know does what he does. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> said no. The door was open. <laughs> So, Mark, it seems like something specifically to BA pilots is that you all seem to be on Twitter and you all seem to post absolutely phenomenal photos from the flight deck, out the windows, wherever you might be on an aircraft. What is it about BA pilots that just seem to really love just flying and being in the air? Is there there something special that, that I'm missing or is it just you all love being up there? I don't know. I mean, there's, I, I think, um, I think pilots are everywhere have a, I mean, it's one of those jobs where people just, you know, not, not everyone loves their job, but, um, but most pilots I know do love their jobs and, you know, having, being able to take photos is a, is a great way to share, um, that experience of, you know, those, those phenomenal views we get up there, which are, which are still better than any you can get from a, from the passenger cabin. And the head up display is actually kind of cool. I mean, it, it does obviously now some of my photos from cruising altitude will have a bit of the head up display in it. And I think that looks even cooler than the ones um, that didn't have it. Um, and of course, I'm really happy to see photos that people do take from the passenger cabin. So, you know, I'm on um, Twitter at uh, Mark V as in uh, Victor 747. 
I have not, I have not changed my Twitter handle to, to the seven eight seven yet, and I'm always happy to get emails from my via my website with photos, and I've I've got a gallery that I that I put them up at. I think it's always really interesting how the best photos often have a bit of the airplane in them. I talk about this in one of my books actually, but like if there's a bit of the wing in it or the engine, which we can't actually see very well from the flight from the flight deck, it's worth noting. I, I can barely see the wing on a seven eight seven from the flight deck, and so to have those photos that have a little bit of the airplane in them, they kind of they kind of really highlight um, the fact that you're, you know, you're not just seeing that, but you're seeing it in this kind of amazing from this amazing machine. Do you guys are you uh, do you often take photos from the from the window seat? That you uh... pretty much nonstop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's difficult not to. I mean, I agree. Also, I totally agree. not always. Sometimes it's video. Yeah, I took a few a few years ago. I was on a seven forty seven um, as a passenger. And it was coming back across the Atlantic on the day flight from New York, the one that leaves in the morning and gets to London in the evening. And so it was, it was getting, the sun was going down as we were flying east. And I did this video from looking at the back of the wing with that, you know, with the flow coming out of the engine and catching this like this pink and red light from the sun, which we couldn't, you couldn't even see the setting sun it was behind us, but, but the light on the wing and on the um, engine uh, was just, yeah, made for this really awesome video. Yeah, I mean, there's just something about photos and video from, you know, from altitude that they're just better than all the other photos and videos. I, there's, 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 just, there's that quality. There's no doubt. Yeah, but, uh, there's no doubt about that. And what I'm loving now that I see uh, specifically, again, BA pilots posting pictures of the flight management system are, are just out the window while they're still in the air, while they're in the crew rest bunk, which I find amazing that they're working a flight <laughs> and they're tweeting pictures from that flight. That's just, it kind I, of I, blows I my mind. Even, I, I haven't even seen that. That's amazing. The beauty of in-flight connectivity. Well, well some of my favorite photos are, um, I don't know if you guys, this has ever happened to you, but I actually ended um, Skyfaring with the story about this. But, you know, when you're coming into land um, and the sun is casting your, your plane's own shadow on the ground and you can see it, and then the shadow gets bigger and bigger and bigger until you until you meet it, and you meet it when you land. Have, have you guys had that experience? Or? Oh yeah, just on my last flight actually through Iceland. Wow, wow, yeah, I love. Well, if you had if you had a clear day in Iceland, that that's pretty rare as well. Isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> direct well, direct sunlight is not is not always uh, on on the cards there. But I, it's yeah, it's one of my. So I love I love those photos. I, I absolutely love them. I think they they sum up everything I love about flying. Mark, I want to thank you so much for joining us. This has been a a really fun conversation, and uh, I'm looking forward to reading the new book, which comes out in the U.S. on the 30th of April, How to Land a Plane. It's out in parts of Europe. It's been out for a while now, but we're getting our our first chance. Well, Jason has an advanced Swedish copy, so so he's going (laughs) to review that. Learn Swedish to review it. First, got to learn how to read Swedish. So so we'll we'll give him till next week and go from there. But Mark... Van Honecker, a pilot, author, extraordinaire. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a real pleasure. It's been a pleasure, and I hope to see you guys on board. Next, in episode 62, we spoke with Maria Langer, who has a very specialized piloting job. She drives cherries with a helicopter. Welcome back. We're now joined by Maria Langer, who is a helicopter pilot and single seat part 135 operator out of central Washington, and she does some fascinating things that we're about to hear about. So, Maria, welcome to AvTalk. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for asking me. Welcome, Maria. 
So you are a helicopter pilot, which is is actually uh, I think you're the first you're the first person who who flies helicopters only professionally that we've had on the program. So we're, we're in a, a day of firsts here. But you do something with your helicopter that I find fascinating. You don't just fly your helicopter. Your helicopter is your tool as well. And I would love to hear more about what it is you do. Okay. Well, you, I think you're referring to my cherry drying activities. I, I am indeed. Out of context, and, uh, that's very we call it cherry drying. The uh, people who hire us sometimes call it cherry blowing. What it's all about is this cherry trees. The cherries are developing on the trees. During the last three to five weeks of the cherry development, if they get wet, they can absorb the water through their skins, which causes them to expand and split the skins. So basically, rain will cause the cherries to split. And once the cherries split, the growers can't sell them. And since they can't sell them, they want to prevent that every way they can. So a long time ago, way before my time, I've been doing this for 12 years, and it's been going on for at least another 10 or 15 before me, they decided that helicopters are like giant fans. And if they were to hire helicopter pilots to stand by and then have us come out over and hover basically fly really low and slow over the treetops after it rains, we would shake the branches and shake the fruit and get the water out of the trees and off the fruit so that they can dry. And that's basically what I've been doing since 2008. I used to live in Arizona and I would come up to Washington State for the summer. Uh, Now I live up here full time so I don't have to go anywhere. And I stand by and I wait. And when it rains, they call and I, I go out and fly. And I have a bunch of guys that work with me. So we do it together as a team. So are you doing kind of one helicopter per orchard or is it like a concerted kind of, you know, synchronized helicoptering over a single orchard? <laughs> Sometimes it's, uh, it's it goes either way. It depends on how many calls we get and how many of us are available. A lot of times when we're called out after a rain event, uh, we'll each go to a different orchard and then we'll later, some of us will meet up at another orchard and you know, you take these blocks and I'll take those blocks and, and then we work together to dry them. My goal is to get the cherries, the fruit dried as quickly as possible. Um, and that's what my growers like. And they love it when they see two helicopters over their orchard at the same time. So we, we kind of score a lot of points when we can do that. But it depends on how many people call. We uh, have multiple orchards on contract and uh, more orchards than pilots right now. So it's not always as quick as they'd like, but uh, we usually get all the fruit dried within two hours. So how exactly does this work? Do you draw up a sort of plan of attack before you head out? What altitude do you do this at? Or have you just done some of these orchards so many times that you know them so (laughs) precisely that you just get the call and you, you go do your thing? That is pretty much me. Like I said, I've been doing it for 12 years and a lot of my clients I've had for Oh gosh, is one of them I've been working with for, for 12 years. Uh, but most of them are in the past, oh, I say about seven to eight years. I, my clients have me come back every year, which is great. Basically, when the guys come to work for me, I give them a rundown of what I expect. We fly generally five to 10 feet off the tops of the cherry trees. And we fly generally five to 10 uh, miles an hour knots. And of course, you don't read that on your airspeed indicator. You need to read that on your GPS because uh, you're going really slow. 
and rainier cherries, which are the, the lighter colored ones, they have thinner skins and they show bruising a lot easier. So we have to fly higher over those and sometimes faster. You know, the whole form, that's the main formula. The formula changes if they're uh, very, very wet or the trees are very dense or maybe the trees aren't as dense. Maybe they're not as old. We can do it faster or higher or whatever. So I just basically give them the basics and then we go from there. We each get, I make up a book that has in it maps of the orchards and the maps have, the orchards are set up out in blocks, um, like a a couple of acres, you know, five, 10, maybe something larger acres of trees all grouped together and with roads that go around them to kind of mark the edges. And a lot of times there's different varieties of cherries in each block. And uh, sometimes they'll want us to dry the skinas, but not the sweethearts. And you have to know what everything is. So we all have these maps and I'm able to launch the guys and myself uh, based on what the client wants. So a client might call and say, uh, I want you to go to ATM Hill Bottom. That's basically an orchard and it corresponds to a map. And he'll say and dry blocks 22, 24, and 27. So I'll either do it, go do that myself or I'll call up one of my guys and say, this is what you got to do. And so we're all on the same page. And, you know, maybe he's doing those three blocks and I get done early and he's not started on the third one yet. And maybe I'll come in and help him and we'll get it done quicker. So that's basically what we do. That's pretty remarkable. I have to say that you're doing it that low and that slow. So yeah. let's say I'm an orchard that has not used your services at any point and you agree to dry these cherry fields. Do you first have to go out there and do like a ground survey to look for any obstructions, power lines, light posts, anything like that? You know, it is always good to check them out from the ground and I like to check them out from the ground. I try to do it and I try to encourage the guys who work for me to do it. And I, honestly, I used to take them around on their first day in my Jeep and show them around and it would take all day long and it would be mind numbing the amount of information they had to suck in on that first day. Uh, so nowadays I just give them the maps and uh, the other thing that I provide for them is I go on to Google Maps and I draw outlines of all the orchard blocks uh, that uh, correspond to the different places that we might have to dry and I name them. And then I save that file, that GPS file, in a format that can be read by ForeFlight. So we all load it up onto ForeFlight so we can have ForeFlight running with uh, like an aerial photo view. And that would, um, they'd be able to see the boundaries of the orchards that way as well. So I encourage them to go out and to do that basically on their own. That's pretty remarkable. So you're taking, I guess you would you would say civilian level aerial surveys of the area, just satellite imagery from Google Earth and then uh, from Google Maps, and then importing that into ForeFlight so you know exactly where you have to go right there right. on your avionics suite. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it works out pretty well. So I, I have to imagine that there's a lot of kind of specialized maneuvering that goes into operating it in such close, is there specialized training required or, or is it one of those things where if you've flown a certain type of flying beforehand, you're, you're a little bit better at it or is it just kind of this is its own thing and, and you just have to do it and, and practice and practice and practice? You know, for a helicopter pilot, it really isn't anything special. It does require a good level of skills and you know, mostly hovering skills and being able to control the helicopter maybe with a crosswind or a tailwind. 
but there is no special training required by the FAA. This is a Part 91 operation, no special certification. The guys that come to work with me, I require them to have at least 500 hours in helicopters and at least 100 hours in type, which is normally going to be an R-44. Uh, That's really what I prefer for this kind of work. So... Other than that, I mean, if they can't do it, they you know they can't do it. But if you're a 500-hour helicopter pilot, you should have the hovering skills that you need to get down into the trees and get the job done and avoid obstacles. The obstacles are the main thing. So you say that you prefer an R44 for this particular type of flying. Is there any reason behind that? Or yeah, the the main reason is that it pushes a lot of air. An R-22 would definitely not be able to do it. A little Schweitzer would probably not be able to do it. So the the size is one thing. And then there are other helicopters the same size, like a Jet Ranger is about the same size. An R-66 is the same size. But all of these helicopters are more expensive to operate. So the R-44 gives you the most bang for your buck. And what I like about it is that they're interchangeable. It's easier for me to do billing. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, just it's easier for me just to work with R44s so that's what i prefer so if we we found somebody who who had i don't even know like a like an AS350 and and kind of threw them in there that that just wouldn't work for you no it, i mean it would work for me but the question is would it work for them i'm not sure how much a helicopter that size could dry i'm assuming it could dry more but i know it would cost more so i'd want it to dry more i'd want it to count as maybe two R44s if i have to pay them twice as much. Gotcha. You see what I mean? No, no, yeah, yeah. Because if, yeah, the client's not going to want to pay extra for a helicopter that doesn't give them uh, the same coverage, or, you know, or extra coverage, I should say. Sure, sure. So this is, I mean, for the cherry drying, cherry, I, I assume the, the latter half of the, the cherry season is the cherry drying season. What happens the rest of the year? For the cherries or for me? <laughs> for, for you. The, the, cherry, the cherries uh, well, get ever, trucked uh, to me and I eat all of them. That's what yes, happens to that's the cherries. Right. Yeah. Well, once the cherry season's over, and it looks like my season should be over around uh, August 6th this year. That's when my last contract ends, unless they extend. A lot of guys have been extending because the season slowed down. Then what I just do is the my usual stuff. I actually don't fly that much in the off season. I do some charter work with my single pilot part 135 certificate. And I also do rides occasionally at events, but I'm trying not to do too much of that. And I've been doing a lot more pleasure flights uh, than I used to do. Of course, a long time ago, I used to do a lot of pleasure flights. Now I, I stopped doing that, and now I'm doing it again. So, And then in the winter, I go away for the winter. It's too dreary here. I go south <laughs> for the winter, and I leave the helicopter behind. There you go. So the other thing that you're doing, which we shared on the Flight Radar uh, 24 social media channels the other day, was uh, you're developing a YouTube channel kind of explaining the video that we shared was, was going through the instrumentation of the R-44, which mm-hmm. I found fascinating because, like I said, we, we don't get to talk to a lot of helicopter pilots. And normally, Jason and I are generally focused on fixed-wing commercial aviation. And so this was a real kind of different turn for me. And I found that really mm-hmm. interesting. And and that's another thing that I wanted to talk to you about, what was what you're developing on YouTube and, and, and kind of what you've done already and, and where you're going with the channel. Okay. Well, the channel was started actually a long time ago. I think the earliest videos like 11 or 12 years ago. And they weren't very good back then. Uh, they were mostly promotional to push my business when I was based in Arizona so there's a lot of, you know, scenery of Sedona and scenery from other flights that I used to do. They're, they're actually not very good videos. And since then, I had done a video. I, I was keeping my helicopter at home, 
And I had done a video kind of on a whim where I put the camera pointing out the front window. Uh, you could see the back of me and you could see out my front window. And I flew from my home to the airport and I just put that out there and didn't really think much of it. And uh, about two, three years went by and all of a sudden it went viral to the tune of like 8 million views, which is outrageous. And then I started thinking, you know, maybe I should be doing some more of this. So I started getting more involved with doing uh, point of view videos like that. And since then, I've actually started working more with two cameras. I've got another one in there about the flying with the mustache kid, which was a ride that I did at an event with kind of like a little smart alecky kid with me. And he's a lot of fun to listen to. He's, I think he was like seven years old. He's really a lot of fun. Um, and that one also got a lot of hits. And people, I realized that people wanted to see, they wanted to see what I see. They wanted to see what I take for granted all the time. I get in the helicopter you know, buckle up, start it up, and I fly away. And I don't really think too much about it. For me, it really is like driving a car. But people, I, I forget that people really don't have these experiences. So they really liked what I was doing. So I decided to to expand on it and do more. And I'm uh, at this point, I'm I've gotten very serious about it. I'm trying to drop a point of view. I call them "Come Fly with Me" video. I try to drop one of those every Sunday, and then in the middle of the week, I try to drop something I call an extra, which is not inside the cockpit necessarily. Like that that panel overview, that was uh, an extra. There's one that came out today, which shows how my helicopter is fueled. Again, something. I mean, it's hundreds or thousands of times. I've been involved in the refueling of my helicopter, never think twice about it, but some folks actually asked, what is it like? How does it work? So I did a little video about that and, and people are watching it and commenting and it's kind of cool because it's making me realize that the stuff that I take for granted is, is kind of special and I should share it and I should open up people's worlds. I'm, I'm very fortunate in that I'm able to do what I do. The vast majority of people will not be able to do it, but why can't I show it to them, you know, without a lot of hype and without a lot of macho or anything like that? I'm just, you know, this is what I do. Ask me questions. I'll try to answer them. And that's, that's what it's all about. I was uh, kind of going through the the list the other day, and and I started with the the panel video that you posted last week, and then kind of watched some of the the cherry drying videos and things like that, and and just I guess if you've been doing it for twelve years, it, it seems normal. It's your job and things like that. But for those of us who who it's not their job, I was like, this this is amazing. Yeah, it's weird. Why why would you do that? Yeah, it's it's weird. They use helicopters to dry. You hear stories every once in a while about them drawing a softball field or a football field. Um, it's the same idea. They're just moving the air around to to make it um, to dry it off. They also use helicopters for frost control, uh, mostly in California over almond trees in like February, March, and then also in California and Florida over citrus trees. Uh, various times of the year. And in that case, they're flying higher, they're flying faster. And what they're doing is they're sucking the air from up above down into the trees to circulate the air and to prevent frost. And that's another weird helicopter use, very similar to this, but not quite as intense because you're, well, it's intense because you're flying at night, which is pretty intense. But so we don't fly at night for cherries. That was going to be my next question. Do, do you ever fly it? What's the kind of weather boundaries as, as far as cherry drying goes? We fly when they call us and occasionally 
We have had to fly very close to thunderstorms just to get to the orchard. Yesterday when we were flying, there was a lot of wind. The wind was really localized though. So one orchard on one side of the canyon had a ton of wind. The guy just absolutely couldn't dry it. He couldn't, he couldn't work it because he couldn't maintain control. Uh, but yet on the other side of the canyon, this block of trees is not showing any wind while that block of trees is just moving like we would be moving it. So wind is definitely one of the things. Rain on the windscreen can be a pain. Sometimes when it's raining all day, they'll have us go out and blow the cherries in the rain so that they, the water doesn't accumulate in what's called the stem bowl. The stem bowl is where the stem goes into the top of the cherry. They don't want water accumulating in there. So if it's raining all day, they'll send us out in the rain. And when you're flying at you know five to 10 knots, the wind is not blowing that rain off. And we don't have you know, windshield wipers. So visibility can sometimes get a little iffy, which is never good when you're five, ten, five feet off the top of a tree. But so those are the, the challenging things. The thunderstorms are probably the worst when we have to fly close to those. Do, do you ever end up with your head outside the window kind of? You know? <laughs> Boy, maybe once or twice, you know, my new helicopter fortunately has uh, air conditioning, which really comes into play because a lot of times you'll take off and it'll be a miserable, you know, rainy time. But as you're out there drying, the sun comes out and now it's beating into the cockpit and there's no airflow to to stop the heat. So you're just sweating your brains out. And uh, I used to fly with the door off and occasionally I would stick my head out. Uh, but now I don't have to do that. Ace so. Ventura style, but in the air. <laughs> exactly. I mean, if it gets really bad, you can always lift up off the trees, accelerate to, I don't know, 80 or 100 knots, the water will come off and then just get back down, take off, take up where you left off, I should say. Well, so, I see uh, helicopters all day, every day out by my office here in Manhattan, but I think their mission is a little bit different than yours. Before we let you go, I just have one question. At this point, okay. 12 years into drying cherries, do you know just as much about cherries as, as the, the growers? <laughs> That's a really funny question because just the other day, the client I've been working for for the whole 12 years called me to ask me about different techniques for drying cherries because he always wants it done a certain way. And he started thinking that maybe his way isn't the right way. And he was basically asking me how everybody else does it. How, how do the other growers ask you to fly? And so I found that that was very interesting. I know a startling amount about cherries, which is uh, always amazes me because um, they will talk to me about the fruit. And I mean, different varieties are more susceptible to splitting than other varieties. Uh, this year, I learned about something called bum splits, B-U-M. Th those like, are the um, worst kind of splits. The bum splits, yes. Well, the bum splits are um, splits that happen at the bottom of the cherry, not at the top by the stem cup. And they're caused by the tree just taking in so much water and pumping it into the cherry through the stem that the cherry splits the bottom. And that's not something I can do anything about. That's got something to do with either their irrigation not being set up right or, uh, but, you know, so it doesn't really affect me, but still I know about it now, which is kind of weird. So if you're and sitting there, you <laughs> now we do too. And, and if you're sitting there enjoying some Washington cherries, as I was earlier today, I now uh -huh. have a much greater appreciation for, for how those get into the grocery store so, so that I can you know chew on Let them. me just tell you one more thing about that because a lot of the people who watch the videos and comment on them, they say, oh, no wonder cherries are so expensive. And I have to tell you that 
the cost of having the helicopters over work on the cherries, uh, which is not cheap, is not the most expensive part of growing the cherries. I had one grower tell me that birds cost more than I do. And what he was referring to is the fact that when birds get into the orchard and they start pecking on cherries, one bird peck and that cherry gets thrown away. So if birds get in there and they eat up a lot of the cherries, that's less for him to harvest. So he says that birds cost him more than me. And you also have to remember that the trees are being taken care of almost year-round. I mean, they're pruned, they're fertilized, they're uh, treated for pests, they're irrigated, of course. Uh, They've got guys that go around and turn the irrigation on and off. It's really labor-intensive. So it's not me that's making them expensive. And as for the other comment that they always make is about um, helicopter exhaust on the cherries, the cherries get washed before they go to the stores. I'm not saying you shouldn't wash them again, but they don't need to worry about exhaust on them. So that's it about cherries. I have learned more about helicopter flying and cherries than I ever thought I would mm-hmm. in one day. So so thank you so much for, <laughs> for talking with us. Thank you for asking. Let, let us know where folks can find you on the internet. Okay. First of my uh, YouTube channel is called Flying M Air, F-L-Y-I-N-G-M for Maria, Air, A-I-R, all one word, of course, YouTube channel. So look for me there and watch a couple of videos and subscribe. I'm also on Twitter, M Langer, M-L-A-N-G-E-R. And I've been on Twitter since 2007, which is longer than I've been drawing cherries. Well, there you go. And also... Wait, I just want to mention one more thing. I also keep a blog since 2003. It's You could find it the easy way is marialanger.com. So we have enjoyed both Helicopter Talk and Cherry Talk with Maria Langer, who is a helicopter pilot in Washington State who, who spends this particular season drying cherries. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. In episode 63, we chatted with Joseph Tarschmidt, a regional airline pilot and accomplished violinist. On a Christmas flight this year, Tarschmidt not only flew the plane, he serenaded his passengers pre-flight. Welcome back. We're now joined by Joseph Tarschmidt, a regional pilot flying the Embraer E-175 based in LaGuardia. And we are delighted to talk with him. We've talked with long-haul pilots before. We've talked with cargo pilots before. But we've never spoken with someone doing regional flying. So we're really excited. Joseph, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much. Great to be a part of the podcast today. Joseph, welcome to the podcast. I've wanted to have you on for a long time now since we've known each other for a while now since, well, oddly enough, we ended up growing up in the same kind of area. But I guess we connected back in like the NYC aviation days, plane spotting up by JFK, right? Yeah, that's, that sounds about right. It's been it's been quite a while and I facilitate a lot of my aviation relationships to, to Twitter as well. It's been a great resource to meet other people who are interested in not just you know the flying, but also all aspects of aviation. So it's, it's been great to meet you both in person now and and, and on Twitter as well. Awesome. So like Ian said, we've talked to people in all different aspects of the aviation industry, whether it's freight or long haul flying, but regional flying is kind of a whole other beast. It's not like you do one to two flights in a day or even a week, and then you have a couple days downtime and then you head home. Regional pilots are 
all over the place multiple times per day. You can start your day at your base at LaGuardia, go through Chicago, Knoxville, end up in Miami somehow, and then hopefully back to New York unless too many ground stops get in your way along the way and strand you back in Knoxville. But <laughs> that's exactly right. It, there's a lot of variety with it. So, you, you know, depending on the trip, you can, like you say, get all over or you could go right back home hopefully in a day. So, <laughs> so what was your path to get to where you are today? Actually, tell us exactly what your position is today. Sure. And yeah. then just a little bit of the background of how you got to where you are. Absolutely. So for the past uh, two, let's call it two and a half years, I was flying as a first officer in the Embraer 170, 175 series at my company. And just recently in April, I went over to uh, Captain Upgrade class, which is a uh, about a month and a half long process that transitions you over to the captain role. I finished all of that training in June, and so since congratulations. then, congratulations! Yeah, thank you very yeah, much. Thank you, thank you very much. So, so since June, I've been I've been flying now as a captain at my company, which has really been a blast. It's the same airplane, it's the same operations. It's just moving from the right seat over to the left seat. So that's that's what I've been doing, and it's uh, been a really really great time. So where were you before your current employer? Because obviously you didn't just start one day flying E-175s at LaGuardia. Where did you start off? Sure. So before I worked at my uh, my current company, I was working at a company that's based up in uh, Connecticut called Tradewind, actually. So I was I was flying a Pilatus PC-12 uh, aircraft there. That's a single-engine turboprop, uh, usually fitted for around uh, nine seats. And so that was really a lot of fun. Uh, it, was a, it was a great opportunity for me to, to build some experience and to hone my skills as a pilot. I got hired there back in 2000. 2015. And at that point, I transitioned down into the Caribbean, actually flying. I was based down in San Juan, Puerto Rico. I was flying uh, inter-island there. So mostly out of San Juan over to islands like St. Bart's. That was the most popular route. Antigua, Nevis, Anguilla, sometimes St. Thomas and St. John. So that sort of thing. So that was a good experience. It was the first passenger service that I had been employed for. You know, it was a really hands-on operation. So it wasn't just that we were flying the airplane, but we were also talking and briefing the passengers about the entire flight safety concerns, uh, that sort of thing, you know, trying to help with any connections that we could with other aircraft and or car services and that sort of thing. Catering, we were doing everything. So it was a really, really nice uh, way to transition into the flying passenger world by getting to see how all the operations kind of come together, obviously on a much smaller scale. So that was great. And, and, and so I spent about five months down in the Caribbean doing that during the winter season. And then for the spring season, I actually came back up to the Northeast and I was flying uh, based out of White Plains, New York, doing similar island flying actually out of, uh, out of White Plains over to Nantucket, mostly Martha's Vineyard and Boston area. And that was anywhere from, let's call it six to 10 flights in a day, which made it extremely busy. It's the same thing in the Caribbean because there were such uh, short routes. It was an extremely busy day, but it was a, it was a good day of flying. Good way to get your hours up. Yeah, exactly. And that was the primary goal at the time, you know, just to get your flight time up, to get your experience up, and to make some money doing it as well. What was the transition like going from a, a single engine turboprop to a twin engine jet aircraft like the E-175? What did that training process look like? That's a, that's a great question. So my initial foundation is what prepped me for, for all of my professional flying. And I'll talk about that in a minute, I guess. But going from the Pilatus to the, to the Embraer jet was actually uh, pretty simple in my opinion. Uh, the Pilatus, we actually had two models of the aircraft where, where I was working before. They called it the legacy version. And then, of course, the, the NG version, the, the newer generation. Uh, the legacy version was a lot more simple in regards to the avionics and the flight deck, a lot more, well, I should say a lot less glass. So it's a, it's a lot more analog uh, styled instruments. So that was a good experience in the sense that I could focus on actually flying my first heavy airplane or heavy, you know, in regards to what I was flying before, uh, which was just very light aircraft. 
you know, uh, 2,400 pounds or less. So the, the Pilatus was above 10,000 pounds. So it was quite, quite a bit of a step. And that was a good transition to get into that sort of flying. Now to get from the Pilatus over to the Embraer, it was, it was, it was pretty simple in terms of the fact that, you know, once you're flying and you're comfortable flying an airplane, they all pretty much fly the same in one way or another. You know, the engineers do a great job of being able to manipulate the flight controls so that even though you're flying a 86,000 pound airplane now versus a 2,400 pound airplane, it, it, you don't need a considerable amount of extra force uh, to operate it. So that and a good understanding of the systems in the Pilatus and how they work, uh, the pressurization systems. That was my first turbine aircraft. You know, so I was going from from mostly piston powered airplanes now to a turbine uh, aircraft. So I had a decent understanding of how all that worked by the time I got to my current employer and was flying the Embraer. So that was a great transition and a good middle step from my previous experience at the time. So is there anything you particularly like or particularly don't like about the E-175? Yeah. So I there are many, many, many things to like about the Embraer 175. I think it's a fantastic airplane. Granted, it is the only jet I've ever flown. So that, <laughs> that should come with an asterisk, I guess. But with that being said, I think they got a lot right. And I've, I obviously have a lot of friends in the industry that fly various equipment, both in the regionals and also at, at Mainline as well. And the Embraer engineers, in combination with you know other companies that helped make the aircraft even down to the avionics, everything is really, really, really well done. And it's a dream to fly. In terms of what I don't like, it's very, very, very nitpicky things, things that are relative luxuries, especially as your first airliner to be flying. To get, I guess, somewhat technical, I would say about 40% of our fleet have auto brake systems, which is a great additional layer of safety as an option. And so the first couple aircraft didn't have them. Uh, so we've got a mix of them. The, the newer aircraft that we're having de- delivered do have the auto brake systems. And the way it works is that, you know, once you go ahead and touch down on the ground, the computer system is smart enough to apply a brake application. The problem is whenever you're transitioning to either turning them off or applying brake pressure yourself, there is a slight jolting force that you can feel both in, as a passenger and, and in the cockpit. So it almost feels like somebody let off the brakes really quick and then you're you're now applying them again. And there's really, as far as I've, I've found and talked with other Embraer pilots, there's no way to get around that. So that is one thing that is, you know, is something that you have to deal with when you're using the odd brake system. Again, really nitpicky because uh, some some other regional airliners don't have auto brakes at all. And the other thing I would say is the thrust levers in terms of reverse thrust. Uh, sometimes it can be a little bit tricky to get the system to realize that it's on the ground because there are uh, air, air ground sensors. So if you happen to have a really good landing and it's nice and soft and you're trying to get the reverse thrust out and apply the reverse thrust, it can, it can be a little bit challenging. Sometimes you're fighting, you know, there's, there's two thrust levers. So you have to actually use your, your index fingers to pull on a plastic metal switch that, that comes up towards the rest of your palm. And then you have to, once that's activated and, and unlocked, and then you can bring the, the thrust levers back into the reverse position, they're spring-loaded. So sometimes you can only get one out. Other times it's a little bit clumsy and you're trying to, to help slow down the air, airplane. It can be a little bit tricky. So if you really grease the landing, I guess the weight on wheels sensors just don't quite pick it up. Yeah, sometimes the system is kind of thinking. It's like, well, are we, are we really on the ground? I, I think that we're on the ground. was too good. Yeah, I'm I, suspicious. Yeah, when you're, when you're really planted on, it's no problem. So, <laughs> But yeah, like I said, really, really nitpicky stuff. So I, it, overall, I'm, I'm very satisfied with the airplane. It's an incredibly safe airplane. There's so many protections that were uh, introduced and designed to help pilots like myself operated in the safest way possible. So I'm, I'm really grateful for Embraer and their work on the airplane and for all of the other companies that have helped design it. Yeah, that's great. So Jason alluded to this earlier when we first started talking, but I wanted to have you kind of walk us through 
I don't want to say a typical week because I, I know enough to know that there's not really a typical week. Sure. But just walk us through any week to give us an idea of kind of the difference between, like Jason said, you know, flying a couple of days and then being off a couple of days and things like sure. that versus the kind of flying that you're doing or the kind of schedule that you're maintaining. Absolutely. So one of the luxuries that I have at the company that I currently work for is the abundance of different lengths of trips. So for example, right now I, I live in New York and I have the luxury of being able to use ground transportation to get to and from work. And so that is a luxury in the sense that I don't have to take an airplane, for example, to get to work, which is what I was doing for a few years back when I lived in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm going to remember that you just called the F train a luxury. Yeah, I know. It's, it can be challenging at times to help myself remember that because you know it has its own problems, clearly. But in terms of that sense, so for example, I, I prefer to do, I think my, my ideal length of trip at, at my current company is, is a three-day trip. So for example, let's call it a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday sequence. And there's two types of, of ways you can be scheduled. You're either on reserve which is when you have very little say over what you're doing, you're just available and the company will, will, will fill your schedule with whatever they need covered, or you're considered what's known as a line holder. So for the simplicity of it all, I'll just call myself a line holder right now, just so that we can talk about the trips a little bit easier. So let's say on a Monday through Friday sequence, I want to work just three days of that sequence, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. So that's a three-day trip. So in those three days, let's say I have a 7 o'clock a.m. Uh, report time on Monday morning, and show up at LaGuardia, and we'll most of our trips start with a turn. So we'll go from, let's say, LaGuardia down to Raleigh-Durham, you know, turn the airplane in 30 or 40 minutes, and then take that same airplane right back to LaGuardia and go from there. And that's just a, the, the first turn of the trip. And then normally we'll sit for about an hour, wait, you know, potentially have a plane swap. So that airplane will go and do something else while myself, my first officer, and my two flight attendants will stay as a crew and either grab breakfast quickly and then get ready for the next airplane to take down to typically our, our layover or overnight leg. So at that point, let's say we'll go from LaGuardia to Detroit. So we'll take it over to Detroit, and then we'll have anywhere from 10 hours, which is the minimum legal period of, of rest between duty periods, all the way up to sometimes we have 26, 30, 32-hour layovers. So it could be a, a wide range of things. For, so for the purpose of this three-day trip, let's call it a 15-hour layover, somewhere in the middle. We get in the you know mid-afternoon on Monday Generally speaking, I'm I'm ready for a nap at this point, you know. So I'll, I'll try to take a short one and then, you know, not take too long of a nap. But otherwise, I'm I'm kind of messed up for my sleep the next day. And then sometimes we'll grab dinner as a crew, or or sometimes we don't. It really depends. The next day we might do Detroit over to let's call it back to New York, and then we could do New York to to Philly, and then Philly to another layover. So it's the way that the regional flying is is that it's always you start off in your base and then you're always flying either to a hub or a spoke it's always it's always hub and spoke so laguardia happens to be a hub for american flying so a lot of that will go in and out of laguardia in and out of philadelphia in and out of miami and we usually focus on on those three hubs on the american side for for our operation delta we're in and out of laguardia occasionally jfk a lot of detroit now we just started Atlanta. So uh, so it really depends on, on, on which type of flying we're doing. And so generally speaking, a trip is just one code share partner that we have, one regional affiliate, should I say, that, that we're going to do. So, so for the three days, generally speaking, you'll do all Delta flying, all American flying, or all United flying. They won't go, okay, one flight is going to be Delta, the next one's United. So that keeps it a little bit simpler in terms of trying to 
to figure out what you're doing. So that's something I've always wondered about: is these most of these regional airlines in the U.S. They're not just flying for one airline, except for the regionals that are owned right. by an airline. Exactly. Like um, Envoy belongs to American, Endeavor belongs to Delta. The others out there, Mesa, Republic, a couple Sky of the others, yeah, Sky yeah. West, exactly. They yeah. operate pretty much for the three big air, U.S. airlines indiscriminately. Yep. So you you're saying you basically on any given trip you operate for one airline. It's not yeah. like you'll fly LaGuardia to Detroit as Delta right. and then swap hats and then suddenly fly to Houston as <laughs> right. United. Right. And the only time that would ever, ever happen is if you are for some reason reassigned or or something really abnormal and an and irregular operation is happening and the company needs you to fly a particular leg to get to to recover a trip of some sort. But generally speaking, at that point, if you're just doing the one or two legs to, to get the trip back to its its uh, to it to base or whatever, let's say let's say a pilot got really sick somewhere and they needed to call off unexpectedly, then they might re- reassign a pilot off of his or her trip to go recover, and then you you eventually rejoin your your original trip. So, okay. but yeah, but no. the trips are always scheduled originally as just one regional affiliate, you know, just one airline. <laughs> Now, be honest. When doing your pre-flight announcements to the passengers, have you ever announced the wrong airline? So, on my pre-flight announcements, I my honest answer is that I never ever actually mentioned the affiliate. So, I'll always have the flight Interesting. number. Interesting. Yeah, because I've seen I've seen really 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 good captains when I was a first officer make that mistake, and it's just a little bit awkward. At, you know, at first, if people are paying attention, it kind of begs the question, like, well, how do you forget who you're flying for? You know. So, I got to the point where I just mentioned the flight number, and then I'll let the flight attendants take care of the branding aspect because they have scripts that they can very easily use. So, <laughs> This question may not be specific to a regional airline. It's really specific to, to any, any pilot flying at, for any airline. How do you remember so well your flight number? I, you you have the same call sign no matter what airline you're actually operating for because you're all you're always sure. running for your regional airline. Right. But how do you in your brain cue in to your flight number every single time when ATC calls out to whatever airline 429? Like, how do you do that? Well, that's a really great question. And and on the days where you're only doing one flight in a day, which are normally pretty rare at my company, but it's pretty easy. Now, it gets really complicated and hard to, to remember when you're doing two, three, four, sometimes even five flights in a day with all different flight numbers. So we have a, a lot of ways that we can help to remember and to assist us in, in remembering what flight we're operating. So first of all, the the airplane itself has the flight number that you program before you even move the airplane in various methods. It, It will remind you and tell you what flight you're operating. It isn't always in the best way or the easiest way to, to look at when you're, when you're doing multiple things. Sometimes you have to, you click a few buttons to try to get to that page. So a lot of us will also reference the paperwork that we have. So we get anywhere from 10 to 15 pages of information before every flight that's printed out that we can reference as a crew. And so on the on basically the first four pages of that is the flight number. So we'll circle it, we'll highlight it, we'll, you know, sticky note it somewhere, just some way to remember it. So that's that's a good question though. <laughs> so let's close out with some easy questions for you. What is your favorite airport to operate out of? Uh, my favorite airport to operate out of is JFK. And I think you probably saw that one coming. It's where my entire... I sure did. Yeah, it's, it's where my entire my entire passion and love for aviation is, you know, started. So anytime I see that on my schedule, and actually I have... Uh, I have a trip coming up next month in the middle of the month where I get to go through uh, JFK. Uh, I really, really enjoy it. And I always just, 
I, I can look down on, on the spots where I would watch airplanes as a child and, and think, wow, this is actually really neat that I get to do this now for a living. So that's without a doubt the, the number one place I love operating in and out of. And I guess a, a quick, easy follow-up to that would be LaGuardia is a close second uh, for the same reasons. So. Interesting. I was going to ask you next, what's your least favorite? And I was expecting <laughs> you to say LaGuardia. Yeah, you know, actually, so from the flying aspect, LaGuardia has a lot of challenges, obviously, um, not just for the passengers, but also for the pilots in, in regards to the available runway lengths, the conditions at the airport, uh, clearances for wingtips, even on taxiways. I'm sure you, both of you and the rest of you listening are familiar that several wing strikes have happened with other airplanes while taxiing around in and around LaGuardia. So there are a lot of challenges that LaGuardia brings to even once you're moving the airplane and of course, before you even get to the airport, but definitely not my least favorite. I really enjoy the hand flying aspect. Uh, the expressway visual approach to runway 31 is, is a pilot favorite because we really have to hone into our skills and, and, and operate the airplane in an old school way, but still clearly in a safe manner. But in terms of operating which airport I don't like operating into, that's a tough, I don't know if I have a, nothing really comes to mind right away. I might say the Detroit operation can be sometimes a little bit frustrating from the pilot side, mostly due to the Delta ramp operations over at the uh, the McNamara Terminal. On the south end of the A-gates, right around uh, Alpha 1, 2, and 3, there's about three different ramp frequencies that we have to contact for, oh, I don't know, about 100 feet worth of pavement. So that can get a little bit tricky sometimes trying to figure out exactly who to talk to who just ends up referring us to the next person and it feels like you're getting the runaround from AT&T or something. So, <laughs> <laughs> And I guess lastly, what's next? What aircraft would you want to transition to or do you want to fly the E-175, uh, maybe the E-2 one day forever? That's a great question as well. So the company I'm currently working for, we, we only actually have the Embraer 170, 175 in our fleet. And we have over 190 of them uh, with 100 more on order and then an option for 100 more on top of that. So if I do decide to stay where I currently am employed uh, for the long term, then I'll, I will be flying this airplane for quite a while, which is not a bad thing. It's a great airplane, like I've said. With that being said, I do hope to get on, like a lot of other regional pilots in the United States, I do hope to be able to get on to, unquote, mainline carrier, an airline like United, American, or Delta, or even JetBlue, somewhere that I can be based in New York, uh, hopefully, and fly something a little bit larger, a little bit more comfortable in the cockpit, and most importantly, in terms of the job market, uh, hopefully a more stable career that's not subject to the ebbs and flows of the regional industry as much and then to try to make that translate into a, a better paycheck down the line with better retirement. Uh, so generally speaking, in terms of an actual airplane that I would love to fly, I'm not really too picky. I've always enjoyed the, the 757, 767 uh, series airplane. I think it's always been a neat airplane. I do like that it's kind of loud. I was in a Dreamliner uh, jump seat yesterday, and I couldn't believe how quiet it was. It was actually a little bit disappointing because <laughs> <laughs> you're up front of a 450,000 pound plus airplane, and it's it seems like you're just you're able to whisper to the people next to you. So, <laughs> it well, is maybe of, on the way home you can uh, non rev on a Mad Dog. And yeah, sit there in row you go. 32. There you go, and you could hear it screaming and whining the whole way. So, <laughs> so thank you so much for talking with us. This has been a very enjoyable conversation, and, and certainly a a new look to the industry that we that we haven't had before. So I, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Joseph Tarschmidt is a captain now. Congratulations. Thank you. I really appreciate it. <laughs> major regional airline in the United States. And he can be found on the Twitters at String and Rudder. So go check him out there. And Joseph, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you very much. And I, one other thing I wanted to add just quickly is that uh, my, my handle, String and Rudder, comes from, from a book that, that some other pilots may know as Stick and Rudder, to play on that. But the string part comes into the fact that I've uh, been playing violin now for 16 years, really passionate about uh, classical music as well. So if anybody ever wants to connect in that regard, uh, let me know. But Ian and Jason, it's really been a pleasure talking to you, and I hope to talk with you again soon, and I wish you all the best. Thanks, buddy. Notams are extremely important to safe flight, as they make crews aware of any hazards or special operating instructions at an airport. They can also be long-winded, confusing, and sometimes downright silly. In episode 65, we talked with Mark Z, the founder of Ops Group, a professional aviation organization trying to reform the Notam. Welcome back. We are joined by Mark Z, the founder of Ops Group, a village, as Mark describes it, of over 5,500 flight operations professionals, pilots, controllers, dispatchers, ground folks, anyone who who has an interest in, in making sure that aviation runs well. And we're here to have a an exciting conversation about NOTAMs. And so, Mark, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Ian. I love how counterintuitive that sounds, an exciting conversation <laughs> about NOTAMs. We'll, we'll give it a shot. I think we can do it. Well, I am excited to talk to you about this because it's one of those things in aviation where, where once you kind of start to sort of understand them, you cross that Rubicon. I feel like it's one of the, the aviation rites of passage, yeah, like trying a, to understand what one of those is saying. Exactly. A badge of honor, as it were. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I, so I don't think anyone that's not in the airline or aviation industry is going to look at these things and have any idea what is they're trying to convey. And so let's back up and start at the beginning. Mark, please let us know what is a NOTAM or NOTAM question, or, or however you want to pronounce it. How do we yeah. even pronounce the thing? No TAM. Some people say NOTAMs and different things, but no TAM. And, you know, even without the acronym of what it means, it's a quick and short message to a pilot to tell them that something is different on their route today. That could be en route, it could be at the departure, the destination, the alternate airport. It's just a heads up. It means notice to airmen. That terminology itself indicates how stuck in the past it is, but it's simply a message to the pilot. Now, you said quick and easy, I think. Maybe you use different words, but I feel like that might not be the case in reality. What are the current feelings on, on these NOTAMs? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think to lead into it, it's it's interesting how it unites the pilot community worldwide. It doesn't matter if you're you know spraying crops in Papua New Guinea or, or flying at the line with United Airlines. Every pilot in the world agrees that there is a big problem with the NOTAM system. And the fact that it should be a quick and short message to tell them something is, is part of the problem. It's not. It's often long-winded. The language that's used in it is often confusing and legalese and overly verbose. It's rarely clear and obvious as to what it means. And there are far too many of them in a briefing package. So let's go over a little bit about what could be in these NOTAMs. And for an example, I picked up on the FAA side, I, I looked up JFK here in New York. There are currently 90 NOTAMs issued for JFK. And they, it seems like they range for anything between um, taxiways closed, parts of taxiways closed. Um, in this case, there are 
multiple runways closed, but you wouldn't know that at the top. You would think that would be one of the first things they said. But if you want to know that runway four right, 22 left is closed, you got to look at the seventh line. All sorts of cranes operating. There are birds, the localizers out of service. What do you typically see besides these kind of mundane things in a notum? Not that those are actually mundane. Those are very important. Exactly. Some of those are very important. So the critical stuff that you might expect to see is uh, the runway is closed, so you've got to use a different one. The airport is closed. That's kind of a big deal. Maybe the runway is shorter than it normally is. Those are some of the critical things, but there are also a whole lot of non-critical things. And typically, we get huge amounts of information about very small obstacles, often very far away from the airport, grass cutting times, what animals are around the airport, what's going on with the birds. Did you say what animals are around yeah, the Yeah, fantastic National Geographic variety of animals that you get in <laughs> no times, rhinos and foxes and all kinds of things that effectively are semi-interesting maybe in passing, but there's nothing you can do about it. Either you're clear to land or you're not. And it, it, this is part of what's clogging up the system. So the non-critical stuff is probably... 95% of what's in these no times. The critical stuff is between 1% and 5%. So when if you're operating a flight, if you're the pilot or co-pilot or, or whomever on a flight operating, let's say, LAX to JFK, when would you first see these notums? You'd first see them when you sit down at the table or in the in the you know at the crew room with the rest of the crew. So you'd meet the crew, sit down at a table and look at the briefing package for the flight for the most part. And that's the first glance that you're going to get at these. A lot of pilots will brief themselves on the way to the airport, maybe at the, you know, for the weather, who's operating the flight with them. But pre-briefing the NOTAMs is, is kind of an impossibility because of the number of them. So your group is currently pushing for a revision to the NOTAM system to make them, I guess, bring the critical information up to the surface, but also revise how they're written to make them a bit more plain language? That's part of it. I mean, I guess, you know, this is something that we're discussing in what do we do? Do we look for a completely new system because of how flawed the existing one is? Or do we try like a piecemeal approach to fixing it? That's one of the questions in, in the work that we're doing. But making that decision is kind of where we're at at the moment in, in this group that we formed. And we're kind of working through that. So what are some of the, I mean, beyond the verbose language and, and the often, you know, kind of burying the lead, so to speak, as far as, you know, I, I don't care that there are, you know, migratory birds 200 miles from the runway. And I also don't care that there's a crane set up 14 miles from the end of the runway when I will either be at 10,000 feet or, or 6,000 feet and the crane's 200 feet high. The word crane appears 18 times in the JFK Notum listing right now, but Yeah. Have a look at San Francisco. Count those. <laughs> it's far worse. So beyond that, what's missing right now? Is there critical information that isn't included in the system or is it just the information's there, but you have to read through who knows how many pages to get to what you need to know? Yeah, I think the easiest way, I mean, it's a complex problem in some respects. We've been trying to solve it for 55 years. Um, you know, the very first hint of like changing the NOTAM system was in 1964 um, when the FAA promised us that only critical stuff would be in the system. And you know, since then it hasn't happened. So why is that? There's 5, 10, 15 things that are wrong with the system as it exists. But, you know, the image to visualize is a pilot on a longer haul flight will get 100 pages 
of a briefing package. And the message really is, here's a haystack. There may or may not be a needle in it. And so if you think of it in that respect, it's, it's quite possible you get 100 pages of briefing and there's nothing, nothing in that that's relevant to your flight today. Entirely possible. Um, so when I say there are 90 items listed for JFK, that's only considering the destination airport. That's not the departing airport that has nothing to do with the route of flight to that airport. That's 90 items just for that one airport. That's correct. Exactly. And and so so if you're flying, say you're you know you're arriving at JFK, but you're departing, let's say Dubai. So you're an Emirates flight from Dubai to JFK. You're going to have notams for for Dubai, and then you're going to also want to check notams for whatever your diversion airports are. Exactly. Exactly. So and so that I mean I can only and if you're an A380, you can only go so many places, and they're all probably pretty busy airports. So I can only imagine how many things you're reading through. And, and I've read through more at this point, more notams than I, I care to remember at, at, at this point, just, you know, trying to learn the system and trying to understand and things like that. And one of the things that I find so maddening is that the abbreviations Ugh, aren't consistent. Awful. And that seems like a huge problem when, when you're trying to, to have something that's supposed to be standardized, but it's not. Well, imagine how long these things would be if they actually used all the letters in the word closed. Instead, they do CLSD instead of C-L-O-S-E-D. But I have heard that that's because these things used to be like over telex back in the day and every character was basically pennies and, and cents adding up and they just never never changed. Yeah, exactly. I mean, fun fact, you know, the, the language and the format of the NOTAM system is, it's not based on, it is the telegraphic alphabet from 1924. This is why every NOTAM is written in uppercase. It's, there's a limited character set. Huge part of the problem is actually looking at it and kind of parsing it as a human being. We're not designed to read vast quantities of that stuff. I mean, a hundred pages of abbreviations in uppercase. So that's a big part of the issue. And, you know, in 1963, everything that we use today uses ASCII, the American Standard uh, Character Interface. And that's when the world changed from using ITA2 to ASCII. And aviation said, no, thanks, we're good. <laughs> this isn't the first time that, that aviation has kind of lagged behind the rest of the world in in certain things. You know, this 1963-1964 is kind of the first time that that changes got put into place. Have there been any changes since then or was this a we're going to change everything, we're going to make it better and then nothing happened? Basically, I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> w w we we didn't change in 1963, which is the joke, you know. We stayed with ITA2 when everybody else went to ASCII. So, you know, a lot of pilots don't even know that. But if you're looking at your briefing package and you're wondering, why is it in uppercase? That, that's, you know, when somebody types on the internet now in a forum in uppercase, you, you get an immediate onslaught of uh, caps lock memes. But this is what we have to read in the cockpit every day. And long and short of it is it hasn't changed in any shape or form. The only thing it has done is got worse. There's more of them. We've gone from 500,000 NOTAMs issued in total worldwide in 2007 this year, it's 2 million. So they've quadrupled in the space of 12 years. And aviation is not unique in this respect where ancient protocols and restrictions 
hampered future improvement. Up until a couple of years ago, the National Weather Service here in the U.S. was only able to issue weather alerts in uppercase because of system constraints. And they only recently fixed that, I think, last year or the year before. Somehow, aviation is, is even further behind that. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that. To jump into the – you mentioned the quadrupling of, of the number of NONAMs issued. Is that because – is there more kind of covering bases here? Is it, you know, if we don't put this in and then something happens, we'll be held accountable? Is it just a, I don't understand why you would issue four times the, the number of notams than, than just 10 years ago. Great question. Very interesting. The answer is probably yes. I don't know. It's, it's, it, it is a kind of, you know, it'd probably take a while to unpack exactly why that is. But I would say the primary reason is that that fear of if we don't stick this into the system, then if something happens, we'll get sued. And the reality is that that's probably not true. It's a fear, but it's probably not based on any real fact. Um, you know, we get a lot of bird notams. Bird notams are my absolute favorite. They are magical things. They are so funny to read. So instead of just saying like we have birds in the vicinity of the airport, which is a de facto situation anyhow, you know, birds like long grass, airports have long grass, the space between runways has lots of it. So you're going to get birds. Nothing you can do about it. They're going to go into your airplane. They're going to go into your airplane. But yet we have pages and pages of specifics on, on the types of the birds. And the best one is birds of Bangkok. There's an incredibly specific list of the types of birds. I'll, I'll read you a few just for fun, right? This, please, please. This is brilliant. This is the latest issue from June. And it, again, it's in every pilot going into, into Bangkok will get this. Types of birds in the vicinity of the aerodrome. Painted stork, gray heron, black-headed ibis, a purple heron, the lesser whistling duck, the black-crowned night heron. <laughs> Great egret, <laughs> intermediate ridiculous. egret, cattle egret, little egret, the barn owl, etc. And somewhere right under that, it's going to tell you the runway is closed. Yeah, right, exactly, exactly. So lots of specifics on all of this type of stuff. And it's not just birds. It's when they're cutting the grass. It's a fence two miles from the airport that's four feet high. It's, you know, endless examples of stuff that is not relevant and yet is in there. And therefore, we get what we had in San Francisco, the Air Canada 759 incident back in 2017. Critical information is missed. And suddenly, it's not funny anymore. We, we had what would have been the worst crash in US history. The pilots missed the NOTAM. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you read my mind. There was a major article published just uh, this week about the Air Canada incident. And both pilots, they, they said they had seen it at some point in the NOTAM, but it wasn't on top of their mind because it was just buried in minutiae, hundreds and hundreds of lines of other just crap. Exactly. NOTAMs aren't always as dramatic and, and headline news as that, but it is very fair to say the direct cause attributed by the NTSB to that incident was no time. So it wasn't a contributing factor. It was the factor. And sure, there was other issues on that flight. You know, the pilots were tired and, and some maybe questionable things about the operation, but the direct cause was no times. And that was one second, 14 feet in the go round. That was the distance between the bottom of Air Canada and the top of the Philippine 747 on, on the taxiway. Uh, it, it doesn't get any closer. It would have been the worst crash in US history. So who is responsible for making 
decisions that that are binding on this system. I, I know your I know Ops Group is is working on coming up with solutions, but say you come up with you know this is what we want to do. Who do you go to to say okay, here's our solution? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's also part of why it's been so difficult to solve. There really isn't any one authority that you can attribute responsibility to. It, it's global. Each state is responsible essentially for their own NOTAM system. ICAO sits on top of that. But the, the thing is that it's, it is such a complex problem to solve that you don't solve it, I believe, by you know, attributing responsibility to somebody and saying, hey, uh, you guys need to solve this. And, and this is kind of why we formed the NOTAM team, because what I wanted to do was, in writing the article that I wrote, I wanted to find people who would say, I'll take responsibility for being part of the solution. I'll put my hand up and say, hey, I want to do something about it. You know, And, and personally for me as well, I, I, I've had fun for a year or two. We've had fun in Ops Group, and there's a lot of fun to be had with NOTAMs. You know, we've had some great ideas, and we had the, the worst NOTAM contest, and we wrote a book, and we made a game, and did all kinds of stuff. But in the end, yeah, at a certain point, you kind of go, okay, I will step up and take responsibility. So I looked for who else is in. Um, we found 200 people, mostly pilots and dispatchers, to say, yeah, I'll jump in and I will take responsibility for helping to drive the solution. And so have you reached any conclusions or are you working towards various schools of thought or, or what's happening? So what's happening is we're actually only a month into it. The, 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 the first article I wrote on NOTAMS was in 2017, but the, the one that really kind of got traction again this year was back in the June, start of July. So we're really only a month into it. But what we've done is get everybody together in one place, thanks to the wonders of the internet. We have great collaboration tools. And now the question is, what are we doing? What are we working on? And we've come to the point of figuring out that creating a beautiful new system that feels really good to use, that does the job wonderfully well, is the thing to work on. So how do we solve it? And for us, the key is uh, you know, bringing, to, bringing outside support into the problem. So not just aviation people, but critical thinkers, designers, creators of beautiful information. And people outside aviation that have solved similar problems, you know, we have people from the nuclear industry, we have a whole bunch of different fields. And so not being restricted by anything just to create something wonderful, that's where we're at right now. It sounds like a monumental task, but one that would be extremely rewarding and and, and I think welcomed by everyone in the aviation community. It's one of those things where it, outside aviation, it seems like this obscure, you know, text messaging whatever, but is absolutely critical to the safe operation of flights. Exactly. It has an incredibly important function. If, any, you know, if you get onto an airplane, we're all passengers at some point. Don't you want the pilot to know more than you about the route of flight and the destination? Don't you want them to know everything they should know? Of course you do. Um, and yet in the technology, you get on the airplane, you turn right, sit down, and you get into WhatsApp, and you're choosing emojis and using the latest technology. And up in the cockpit, we're using 1924 character set on dot matrix paper in abbreviations and codes that half of them don't understand, myself included. It's not a safe setup. <laughs> I mean, when you put it like that, it's in pretty stark terms. It is. But in thinking about it, I think it's important to think of it as a simple problem rather than a big complex problem in, in trying to solve it. And, you know, I was thinking earlier about Flight Radar 24 and the type of problems that Flight Radar 24 has solved. And, you know, if you go back 25 years and think about what the information is that Flight Radar 24 is, is presenting, 
go, go back 25 years, the only thing we had was an audio version of what you do, perhaps a position report at 15 West or 20 West. And if you listen to it, maybe on HF, um, it's the same information, the same data that Flight Radar 24 has, but it's not intuitive. We don't respond well to, you know, 52 North 15 West at 1202370, 52 North 20 West 1224. It doesn't engage us as humans. Um, the written version of that is not much better. You look at a bunch of coordinates on a piece of paper, you can't really make sense of it. And Fast forward to what Flight Radar 24 is. It's beautiful information. It's a joy to look at. It's presented wonderfully. You, you get what it is straight away. If you're looking at a chunk of airspace, you're seeing all the airplanes and whatever information you need is, is there. And, you know, these are some of the places that we're actually looking at for answers because it's been done. We have the tools. So we're just trying to apply that to no times, you know. So what else is, is Ops Group working on, tasking itself with? I mean, you've got a large collection of, of folks who work in a variety of positions within the industry. What else are you, are you folks doing? Yeah, good question. I think, you know, NOTAMs are part of a wider aviation information problem. They're one aspect of it. And the greater thing that we're working on is how do we get information to pilots so that they know the latest safety issues, the latest risk for their flight, the latest procedural changes, so that they can operate that flight entirely safely. And how do we do the NOPS group? Well, we're, as you said, we're a village, five and a half thousand of us, um, mostly pilots and dispatchers. And the concept is when one person knows, everybody knows. So what we do as the ops group team is we curate the information that's coming into us and engage the members to provide that so that when Critical stuff pops up. We know about it relatively quickly. And then we figure out how do we get the message out to the community best so that they know what's happening. It's very challenging. The rate of change in aviation is exponential now. North Atlantic is one example of how quickly things change, how, how, how large the volume of change is. It's very, very hard as a pilot to stay up to date with stuff. And so we get that as a big group and we go, okay, what are we doing about it? And, and that's, that's our main mission. So if I'm, you know, in aviation and I want to join Ops Group or if I'm interested in aviation and I want to read more about what you're putting out there or, or writing and things like that, how, how can we find you and read more? So the Ops Group website is ops.group, G-R-O-U-P, ops.group. It's pretty simple. And if anybody wants to talk to me directly, including about the NOTAM issue, uh, it's just mark at ops.group, M-A-R-K. And yeah, love hearing from people, love getting new ideas. So welcome any, any conversation. Mark Z, the founder of Ops Group, banishing the scourge of NOTAMs one line at a time. Thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you. And finally, in episode 67, Qantas 787 Fleet Captain Lisa Norman joined us to talk about Qantas's Project Sunrise and what it's like to fly with a brainwave monitor attached to your head. Welcome back to this very special episode of AvTalk. We are now joined by the Qantas 787 Fleet Manager, Captain Lisa Norman. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're very welcome. So we are here to talk about, among other things, the three 
Project Sunrise test flights that are coming up beginning next month, uh, one in October, November, and the third one in December, one from New York to Sydney, and then two from London to Sydney. And you will be piloting one of the New York to Sydney and then one of the London to Sydney flights. Is that correct? Yeah, so what we're going to do, we're actually going to um, reposition some of our delivery flights from Payne to New York, and that will be the October one. And then the second one will be in November, like you say, and that will be from London to Sydney. And we're actually going to do a third one, but we're actually going to position it back to New York and fly New York-Sydney. So there'll be two New Yorks and one Sydney, and I will be on the certainly the first two anyway. Let me back up for a second and ask you about what it is that you do specifically for Qantas. I, we introduced you as the, the fleet manager for the 787, and I would love for you to tell me a little bit more about what that is and what you do at the airline. Oh, certainly. I mean, I have a very exciting job. I'm, I think I'm one of the luckiest pilots in the world. I look after the fleet health of the 787, which means I look after the operation, uh, overflight clearances with the NAV team, all the flight planning, look after all the pilots, oversee their training, uh, making sure that the policy and standards are up to our Qantas standard that we like to uphold everywhere. And we've had for, you know, 99 years nearly. And that's my role. So I I sort of set the boundaries, if you like, and make sure that everyone stays within those boundaries. And so we also do the delivery and acceptance of new aircraft. So I was with our chief technical pilot, Alex Passerini. We work with him to fly to Seattle, pick up the new aircraft. We do the acceptance test flying and all the deliveries. And so this is just part of that function now. And we've just, uh, I suppose, repurposed those flights and we're going to turn the deliver next three delivery flights into these research flights. Wow, you're not kidding. That does sound like an incredible uh, job. I mean, I am so lucky I can't tell you. So, I, I mean, I get to fly these brilliant aeroplanes too, but I also get to manage and do some really cool stuff over in Seattle and Boeing and these, these research flights are sort of just the next extension. So, what is actually going to happen on the flight deck during the research flights? What beyond obviously flying the aircraft? What's going to be happening up there? Well, that's when it gets really exciting, uh, and the the flights themselves will, like you say, be our business as usual. So that's what we normally do. But over and above that, we'll do some wellness and alertness monitoring and testing. So the pilots will be wearing EEG gear or brain wave activity, sort of a modified headset, if you like, and. And they're very ergonomic, so the pilots can wear them when they're actually on the flight deck so it doesn't interfere with their actual headset and boom microphone. And then they can actually wear them where they're sleeping as well. They'll be asked to do some cognitive activities. There'll be some sleep diaries. There'll be some other wearables. They're looking at sort of watches and things like that that monitor alertness. We're even talking about some urine samples to test for melatonin levels, which I believe hasn't been done before. So there's quite extensive testing pre-flight and also post-flight and also in-flight. I believe we're actually looking at some sort of eye tracking for alertness monitoring now and putting some cameras into the flight deck as well. So it's very exciting. I don't believe that uh, there's been this level of in-depth sort of research into pilot alertness and wellness. So obviously this is critically important for what will end up being the world's longest flight. But are there plans to bring anything that's learned from this to 
the rest of the fleet, or or is this something that's being focused on specifically for the Project Sunrise flights? No, we, we can actually use all of this. I mean, we, we've got extensive history of doing this sort of uh, wellness and fatigue data testing anyway. We're doing it currently on the Perth London with the 787 crew. They're keeping sleep diaries and we're measuring brainwave activity. So this is part of our, what we have a fatigue risk management system. It's quite robust in Qantas. And we use some of our long extensive histi- history in the the, um, sort of the proactive, if you like, field. And then we have a predictive field where we use some science and biomath modeling. And then we have some reactive as well. So all this scientific data then will be plugged into our current fatigue risk management system. And that will hopefully improve and optimize our current practices. And certainly for Sunrise, prove that it's just one step in the direction that we're going. But we can actually use all of this data in what we currently do to optimize the pilot's alertness. So this is all pretty amazing. And, and already today, Qantas has some exceptionally long flights, like uh, QF9, the, the Perth to London flight, also on the 787-9. Some of these flights are, are basically 17 hours takeoff to touchdown. Um, actual time in the aircraft is obviously a bit longer than that, maybe up to an extra hour uh, boarding and deplaning time. How long are you expecting these these trial flights to be for Project Sunrise? Yes, that's a good question. Uh, the flights we're expecting just the flight time about eighteen and a half hours. We're seeing we're running plans every day, and we're seeing sort of eighteen twenty-five to eighteen um, hours thirty-eight at the moment. Uh, that's just purely flight time. You have to add taxi time onto that. So that's in our northern winter when we do Perth London. We're seeing those sort of flight times maybe 1740. This is probably 45 minutes longer. We've been doing Dallas-Sydney for a while now on the 380 and that that can get up around 17 and a half hours as well. So the London-Sydney and the New York-Sydney are about the same flight time, even though, you know, there's a difference between the the distance. It's just because of the, the jet streams as we get from, as we come down from JFK or New York to Sydney, as we get into the southern hemisphere, you start to pick up some jet streams as you get into Australia and they can be up to 150 knots on the nose. So very, very strong jet stream tailwind, uh, sorry, headwind. And uh, that can add an hour to the flight, even though it's a shorter distance. It's something like 16,200 kilometers and London, Sydney's 17,800. But I Ironically, they're about the same flight time. So you mentioned the taking advantage of the jet stream, but I also wanted to ask about looking at the the Great Circle routes, especially from from London to Sydney. It takes the Great Circle route takes the flight over some areas of, of Chinese airspace where there aren't any actual flight routes, which you know partly due to the Himalayas and then partly due to just how the Chinese airspace is structured. So I was wondering what route the flights might actually plan versus the the Great Circle route. That's another good question. They're actually working really extensively on that now to uh, the optimized route. The most optimized route we're looking at is exactly as you say, coming down through Russia and China. And we're actually coming down over sort of head Hong Kong, if you like. So most people think we head through the Middle East, you know, over Saudi Arabia and India, and then over the uh, Indian Ocean to Australia. But in fact, the, the most optimized route is through, like you say, Russia, China. And we're working quite closely with our NAV team and to get the navigation approvals and overflight clearances. And like you say, then there's the consideration around terrain. The 787 is very capable aircraft in terms of terrain. We used to fly, you know, the 767 had probably more restrictions, but this aircraft, even from a depressurized, it's got a it's got a much higher profile than the other twin engines. So we've got much more flexibility with this aircraft than we have on previous aircraft. 
Crew-wise on board, what is it going to look like for the augmented crews? How many pilots do you expect to have on a flight that's this long? Or, or is there going to be any sort of enhancements to the crew bunk on board? Or what are you going to do during your downtime on this flight? Is there going to be anything special? Or is it going to be pretty much like a, a regular flight, just a lot longer? Yeah, this look, this for us is our bread and butter. This is what Qantas do. This is actually not much longer than what we already do. So for us, we'll have four pilots like we normally have four pilots. The crew rest, the overhead crew rest facility on the 787 is very comfortable. It is. So it's a, it's a stock standard. We obviously provide, you know, some bedding and pillows and such. So it's just a normal flight for us from a crew point of view. When when the flights start to get a bit longer than this, like 20 plus hours, like we're talking sunrise, that's where we start looking at because you'll have times of work activity on the flight deck, if you like, and then you'll have times of sleep. And that w- what we're sort of progressing towards is what happens when there's those in-between times. What are we looking at doing for the crew, for the passengers? And that's where this research can really come in to its own and we can develop further ways to manage those times if you like because there's only so much time people sleep and only so much time people work. So in talking with Boeing quite a lot on this subject because they did a round-the-world flight 42 hours and they had six pilots. They had one stop in the middle for two hours on the ground and I was asking them how did they choose six pilots and it was a really interesting conversation. They did a lot of study and research behind it because if they had too many pilots, then that time of not sleeping and not being used on the flight deck, sort of the working time, became too great and what would you do to manage that? So they ended up going with six pilots and managing the crew accordingly. What we do as a normal flight, and this is no different this flight, the crew manage their rest sort of not by, it used to be when we first started on the 747, two hours on and two hours off. That became very prescriptive. So we leave it up to the crew how they're going to manage their rest. So one pilot might be a little bit more sleepy or weary than the other pilot. So they'll go off and have a sleep we tend not to watch clocks because we find that's too detrimental to the alertness of the pilot if you're watching a clock when you need to come back on the flight deck. So it's very flexible. We leave it up to the crew because everyone's different and there's that recognition and everyone's different in a different slip port as well. It also depends on people's things like diet, which I know that they're looking at some of the um, university researchers are looking at uh, meal choices for the some of the passengers on board, some of the lighting effects at coffee or protein. So there's a lot that goes into managing alertness. That's super interesting. And and what I also find interesting is actually all this research is being done on the uh, Boeing 787-9, which was actually not the aircraft that's announced to be um, actually operating these flights. That decision, I believe, is yet to be made uh, coming December, the end of this year. It's going to be either the Airbus A350 or the Boeing 777X. What information are, are you looking to gather from the 789 specifically that can be ported over to either of those aircraft? Or is it really everything you're learning about what happens on these flights can be ported to really any aircraft that you're going to operate? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the important point. We're doing these research flights. It's not just for some Sunrise. We can. This is such fantastic data and so exciting research that we can port this over to all our fleets, including you know our sort of uh, narrow body or seven three seven fleets and our other group entities as well. So it's all about how we manage the alertness and optimize, say, the rostering time in port, what happens on the aeroplane, food choices, maybe liquid choices when they have their meals, how we 
organised transport to and from the airport. So, yes, you're right. The 787 is not the aircraft that is being um, evaluated under the Sunrise project. I've been lucky enough to test fly the 350-1000 over in the Airbus over in Toulouse, and I've also been lucky enough to go and fly the what they call the ECAB or the maintenance simulator for the 777X, and that was last year. So, But all this research, it's all portable to our other fleets, the 747, the, eight, the current A380, the 330, and the 737, and also other group entities as well. Now, that's super interesting. I, I can't imagine there are many people out there in the world that have flown both an A350 simulator and whatever is out there for the 777X out there right now, I guess, which is your, the, uh, the maintenance um, simulator, like you mentioned, which isn't actually a full motion, but that's super interesting. What are the differences like on the flight deck of that? Is, is there anything significant or is it really either of these aircraft are going to be ideal in your mind for flights of this very long stage length? Oh, look, they're both, I mean, very superior aircraft. And they both were a pleasure to fly. As you say, the 777X is not built yet. So, you know, it wasn't a full flight simulator, but they both fly by wire aircraft with that great technology and composite um, build. The biggest difference, I suppose, was the 777X has got the folding wingtips. So that was a bit of a novelty for me. You know, the Airbus, I've been, I'm endorsed on the 330. So I have Airbus background as well as Boeing background. So I always say that I speak dual language, both French and American. The 777X has got the folding wingtip, so it was really interesting working with that, seeing how that works, the redundancy around that, because obviously from a pilot's perspective, you know, how are they going to manage if there's a failure in flight? So we talked right through that and I was very – and then we actually got to walk through the factory and see how they were building them and how they were built, and I got to walk onto the first test aircraft that hasn't been flown yet. But uh, So that was a really cool cool opportunity. So yeah, that's what I said to you guys at the start. I've got the coolest job in the world, I think, one of the coolest jobs in the world. So I'm very, very Is fortunate. there anything you have not done? <laughs> well, my next goal is probably space, I think. That's the next one. So, And I've always been saying we need to not fly further. I think we need to fly faster now. So, you know, some, something like suborbital, I think. That seems like a perfectly logical choice given everything we've learned today. And, and that's simply amazing. And and I have no doubt that that we're going to have to do a second interview once you've come back from space. That that'll be fantastic. All right, we can do it actually in the lead up to space because that'll be very exciting too. But I think we can extend that. So I'm all about. I mean, th this comes back to our forefathers and our pioneering history that Qantas has had for so many years that we all talk about here. And we just uh, you know we are from the down the the land down under, and we are in the the southern hemisphere. But we do push boundaries, and this is just a natural progression for us and it's a very exciting opportunity to, to gather this sort of data that's never been done before. So for the for the the test flights that are coming up, you you're going to be uh, piloting at least two of the three. I've I've heard uh, in kind of preparing for the interview we learned that you were in the simulators preparing for these flights and, and getting a feel for the some of the medical monitoring and things like that. Have you learned anything in the preparations for these flights that that is either new to you or, or you found helpful already in, in your regular flying? 
Well, I think the interesting thing is that with these, um, particularly the brainwave activity, the headgear that you wear, there's actually an app on your phone, your iPhone, that you can get. So it's a bit worrying when it flatlines, I think. So, <laughs> and it comes back with no no brainwave activity. I've always wondered that about myself, but I think it's important to not lose sight of the operation of the of the actual flight. That's got to be our number one: is the mission of the flight. Secondary then is the fatigue or the wellness testing, if you like. So some of that data, we have to make sure that it doesn't interfere with, say, the resting pilot or the operation when the pilots are on the flight deck. So I think uh, from my perspective, I'm working with all the teams to make sure that we have a flight deck that can function as normally as possible while trying to get capture this data. So a lot of this data is electronic, as you can imagine. So it has to be sort of self-contained with its own battery and data collection so we don't plug in because we have a lot of instruments on the flight deck which emit a lot of electromagnetic um, interference. So if there's anything going uh, transferring by Bluetooth or Wi-Fi, we have to be really careful what we're plugging in onto the flight deck and make sure that that doesn't interfere with the integrity of the flight deck itself. So in terms of learning, when we're just establishing all that now. So nothing calling out other than my flat line of my brain activity. And so we're doing all this testing in the um, simulated first. Um, once we're satisfied that is safe and functional and effective, then we'll do a little test flight up to position the airplane up to Hong Kong or where it'll be a commercial flight and we'll test the, the gear there and then we'll put it onto these longer flights after that. Well, I would definitely like to see the results of a brain activity measured before and after a cup of coffee. That's what I'm interested in. I know. I do I do think it spikes, but uh, I've got some other gentlemen just doing some, uh, other pilots doing some testing first, and they were quite shocked when it flatlined on them as well. And that's just either bunk, finger trouble with button pushing or not having it switched on. So I think it's really interesting what, they, what we're going to find, I think. And it'll be interesting, I think, for some of the people who are actually being tested as well to, you know, they'll be a bit shocked as well. But it's very exciting too. So after the the three flights in in December, as the decision for for kind of the the whole of Project Sunrise News, what's going to happen after the three flights? Who's sitting down, and what input are you as the the seventy seven fleet manager and and a person who's been intimately responsible for for these test flights? What is the kind of end result of all of this work for you? Well, for me personally, we, we can use this data, as I said, across the across the group, but initially it will be used to help build a safety case that we'll put to our regulator, who's the Civil Aviation Safety Authority here in Australia, to so we can start looking at creating flight plans, if you like, for Sunrise. Because when we actually fly these commercial flights from New York to Sydney or London to Sydney return, the flights will be about 20 hours, and 20 hours, 21 hours, say. And at the moment, our regulator says that we are limited to 20 hours. So it'll be used initially for a safety case that we'll put to our regulator to say, this is the data we've collected. This is how the controls we've got in place. These are the mitigators and we'll work, we'll sit down and work with them. Uh, interestingly, I went over to ICAO in Montreal at the start of the year, March, and I met with their fatigue specialists 
And we sat down and said, what do they think about all this and the Sunrise case? And I explained it to them. And they're very much of the idea that we go away from prescriptive limits, which came in, which came in 60 years ago with aviation. So if we can um, have city pairs and put the controls around those particular city pairs with those particular flight patterns, if you like, and times of departure and arrival, uh, we work out what the periods of low circadian rhythm, the window is, uh, and we put some controls around that. So there's there's actually a couple of airlines in America, which I'm not privy to which ones they are, but they did divulge that the FAAA have got two airlines that currently fly outside their own uh, prescriptive limits at the moment because they've got these city pairs and the controls in place around their own fatigue risk management system and how they fly that. So that's what we're aiming to do. And it's it's bigger than Project Sunrise. This goes into our future. So we're about to turn 99 next month, and we'd like to set this up for future success for the next 100 years. You mentioned the, the city pairs, and I wanted to ask about that as far as the length of the flight. And, and we've talked about this on the podcast before when we discussed the longest flights. We talked about it when, when the Project Sunrise test flights were announced and, and when Qatar and Emirates were, were launching their rather long flights is that you often spend quite a bit of time on the ground, especially at certain airports where, you know, from boarding to takeoff can be one, maybe two hours. How is that considered when dealing with kind of time regulation? Are there different kind of concerns as far as rest and and awareness go when you're just kind of sitting there waiting to take off? We're fairly busy in that pre-flight stage. So for us, we're at sort of a very heightened stage of alertness anyway. And some of our briefings we're reviewing, if you like, to make sure that if someone's briefing is too long, you can actually lose people. Uh, we want to keep it really succinct. How can we do that better? So we're actually going through a period of review of that at the moment, but that's not just for Sunrise. That's for all flights as well. As I said, mentioned before, it's not any different than what we do now because, you know, some of the – I look at also the transport times from the hotel to the airport, then the actual thoroughfare through the airport, through security, through immigration. That takes time as well. So the whole – the whole picture is being looked at. How our pre-flight is pretty, uh, it's only an hour. And once we get on board, that's pretty sacrosanct. Is that the word? So we we keep that, the checks and flows in that sequence, I suppose, very free from disruption if we can. We have disruption management techniques. The periods of low is where we really have to manage it. So there's not a lot of downtime for our crew at the airports. If you're waiting in a holding pattern like at Chicago, you can go from seven seventh aircraft in the sequence to number 70 because there's a storm coming through the field. Um, we have some procedures to help manage that. We have a checklist if you might have to shut down engines for an exper- extended period of time. And the crew have strategies to try and manage that periods of low, if you like, before they, they ramp up operationally again. Interesting. That was kind of where where I was going with that is the when you're encountering irregular operations, like there's a storm moving through the airfield, or um, you know, thinking of JFK, where where you're dealing with you know a long taxi queue out, and and how you're managing that kind of I'm ready to go, but wait, now we're not ready to go because the the airfield's closed. 
Yeah, we we do that now because we have we have, we fly into New York now. So on the seven eight seven, that's not unusual for us because of the you know the events that happen or the snow storms that you had you know coming through just recently and and certainly last year. So our crew, you know, you're going through de-icing. You might have to go back to the gate, get some more fuel, and then you go out and de-ice again. And I think one of our crews spent four hours and 11 minutes taxing around JFK at one point. So we are sort of exposed to that because we've been flying to New York for a very long time, just more recently on the 787. Uh, Qantas is no stranger to JFK and our terrible, terrible winter operations. I have to say, though, they're very organized, you know, getting through the, the de-icing machine and equipment. They, they're very much organized and geared for it. If it happened in Australia, because it would be such a shock, I'm not sure we'd be geared for it. But um. <laughs> <laughs> from there, just, just cancel the flight. Yeah, if, if we're getting that much snow there, just, just call it a day. This has been a fascinating look into Project Sunrise test flights and and what's about to happen over the next few months. And certainly we'll be following rather closely the, the actual test flights as well as the results that uh, that come out of that as, as it moves into commercial service. Captain Lisa Norman, the 787 Fleet Manager for Qantas, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome, and it's absolute pleasure. I am so thrilled to share my passion with you. So thank you for having me on the podcast today, and I look forward to talking to you again. We hope you enjoyed our look back at some of our favorite interviews from 2019, and we're looking forward to sharing even more fascinating aviation stories with you in the coming year. From all of us at Flight Radar 24, Happy New Year, and thank you for listening. <music>